Grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God our Father and from our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ. Our text today will be taken from the reading we just heard in the Gospel of Matthew. Let's begin with the word of prayer. Almighty God, we give you thanks that once again you have gathered us here as citizens of your kingdom so that we might receive the gifts and the benefits that you bestow upon us in this place. We ask you, Lord, that in our hearing of your word today, you would teach us what it means to be both citizens of your kingdom as well as citizens in this world. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Imagine with me, if you will, a trial, a hearing of sorts. On trial is a person of great political import having to answer questions about every controversial issue on the map. They are being questioned by a tribunal of questioners who, quite frankly, have already made up their minds about the person in question, but are firing one question after another to catch this person, to trap this person in their words. They are looking for a way to get this particular person in trouble, to make them look weak and foolish in the eyes of the public. These interrogators, now who gather together, are typically opponents of one another, but in this particular instance, they are working together, united in their purposes to catch this person in their words. Now, I am not talking about this week's Supreme Court hearings. <laughs> I'm talking today about the Lord and the trial he is on in the Gospel of Matthew here this morning. Here we find Jesus being put to the test uh, by his detractors trying to find a way to catch him in his words and to get him in trouble with the people. Now, before we get into this today and really kind of dive in, uh, I, I want to make a couple of comments as we get into our text today. I do not particularly enjoy talking about politics from the pulpit. And quite frankly, I would suggest to you that this is not the responsibility of the pastor or the pulpit to preach politics to you. Not to tell you how to vote or anything like this. However, we are living in a day and an age where I fear both outside and even inside of the church uh, politics have become somewhat of an idol, which means politics have begun to encroach on God's territory, which means now that we have to speak about this so that we might leave politics in their proper place and put God in his proper place as Lord over all of creation. Now this thing is really coming to a head and, and tensions are very high right now because I don't know if you knew this, we are in an election year and that election is only 16 days away. Uh, and so it is a very tense time right now. It's created a lot of anxiety within and outside of the church. There's even division and ar uh, argument within the church. And so as we hear Jesus today be interrogated by his opponents, we're going to find that he's going to give us some very great wisdom and guidance as to how we as Christians should be conducting ourselves as citizens both of his kingdom and as citizens of this kingdom. And what we're going to hear Jesus talk to us about today is how we are to participate, I think, in political activities, how we are to honor political authorities, how we are, what we as Christians owe to the government, to each other, and to God. The way Jesus teaches us today is crucial for our understanding of how we conceptualize ourselves in this world. 
Now, as we get into Jesus' answer today, it's helpful to remember where Jesus is in the context in which he's speaking. If you've been following along over the last number of weeks, you know that Jesus is in a rather tense place here in Jerusalem. He just came in on the donkey. It's Palm Sunday. Now we're in the middle of Holy Week, and he's being interrogated by all kinds of people. Over the last number of weeks, we've heard him tell a few parables that have really angered the religious establishment, angered them to the point that they say, this is it. We're done with Jesus. We've had enough. We need to get rid of him. And so today we find the religious leaders, specifically the Pharisees, plotting a way to get rid of Jesus. So they gather together and they get this great plan together and all these big, powerful, scary religious leaders organize themselves and they think, here's how we're going to get Jesus. Here's our plan. And then they send their confirmation students to interrogate him. It's a very interesting passage. This is what it says. The Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle Jesus in his words. And they sent their disciples to him, along with the Herodians, that is, those who worked for Herod, the political uh, leader of the day there, saying this, Teacher, we know that you are true and you teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? They are actually not all that interested in Jesus' opinions on particular tax policies. What they are interested in is trapping Jesus in his words and getting him into trouble uh, with particular groups at this given time. See, it's a very different world. It, unlike our world right now where we're all united politically, there was a lot of political division in Jesus' day. It was a very strange time. And, and what you found is there was arguments over taxes. You've never heard of a thing like this. The Romans were occupying Jerusalem, and they were exacting taxes from the Jews. And the Jews felt that they should not be paying taxes to Rome. These are the enemies. They're not welcome here. They don't belong here. What's more, on their coin, you had the image of Caesar. On the coin, it said Tiberius. It was a, it was a picture of Tiberius Caesar with this inscription. Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus, meaning... Augustus Caesar was viewed by them as a god. So the Jews could rightly say, we're not paying that tax because paying that tax is a form of worshiping Augustus Caesar. And we don't want to break the first commandment in honor of false gods. So we don't believe we should pay the tax. Now, as it turns out, the Romans disagreed. They thought they should pay the tax. And probably we have the Herodians here, and this is sort of my guess, the Herodians would have been more of the pro-tax team because they worked for the government and they got the money from the taxes. So they were there sort of in favor of the taxes, um, more on the side of the Romans, and the Pharisees and the disciples of the Pharisees would have been more on the side of the Jews. But the question to Jesus is, is really just kind of a trap. Because recognize, if Jesus says something like this, well, no. You don't have to pay the tax. Immediately, the Herodians report that, and the Romans can come in and say, you, Jesus, are leading an uprising and an insurrection. And now we have a reason to crucify you because you're denying the authority of Rome. The other side of it is if Jesus says, yes, you must pay the tax, now the Jews turn on him. And at this point in, in Jesus' uh, ministry, uh, he's got quite a following. If you read about his life there during Holy Week, he's got a large number of people who very much like him and what he has to say. And so if, he can, if the, the Pharisees can convince the people that he's pro-Rome, they're going to turn on him. And they're going to have no problem getting rid of Jesus. 
So what they're trying to do is catch Jesus here and back him into the corner. But if you're paying attention, you'll notice this. Jesus is not being backed into a corner here. You can't really back Jesus into a corner. The one who's backed into the corner now is the Pharisees. And that's why they're trying to trap him. That's why they're trying to get him. Because they think that they have to stop him from what he's doing somehow. But they will not stop Jesus. They will not trap him. How Jesus responds to the Pharisees and their questioning today, it's really quite remarkable. Remarkable, Because on the one hand, he completely silences his questioners. And then on the other hand, he gives you and I a gift. He gives us wisdom and guidance and direction in how we should conduct ourselves as citizens both of this world and citizens of his kingdom. So this is his answer. Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius, and Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. This is, a, this is good. This is a smart answer. Well, it's Jesus, so of course it's a smart answer. But I mean, this is really just great. Because notice what he does here. Jesus says, okay, show me the coin. Whose face is on it? They say, Caesar. He goes, all right. Then it's Caesar's. Pay the tax to him. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. And now the Romans have nothing they can say against him. But then Jesus also says this. But don't confuse Caesar with God. And still give to God the things that are God's. So now the Jews can't come after him for teaching some sort of idolatry or false worship. Jesus stops everyone in their tracks. This is a wonderful passage. Now, this is the thing where Jesus does. He staves off anyone from saying he's leading a rebellion or he's some kind of revolutionary or he's some kind of idolater. No, you can't get Jesus to court on this one. And what's interesting as you read through these passages in in this particular section of Matthew, every time they come after him with a question, he silences them. Which is why when we get to the actual trial of the crucifixion, before the crucifixion, you'll find that they have to like create charges against him. They have to like create all this false news and fake news about what Jesus has said uh, in order to get him crucified because they can't trap him in his words. Jesus always wins. But now, at the same time, for us, there's something we can learn from his answer. Jesus is teaching us how we are to conceptualize of ourselves now in this world and our responsibility as citizens in this world while at the same time finding ourselves as citizens in his kingdom. Now, we don't have, we we mentioned this a few weeks ago when we went through Romans chapter 13, and we'll look at Romans 13 here in a second. Uh, But remember, here in America, we don't actually have a Caesar that we think is divine. Uh, we don't have a king as such. We're part of what you might call a democratic republic, which means we are a government that is supposed to be run by the people and for the people. So we don't have a Caesar so much, and yet when we think of Jesus talking to us today about uh, uh, how we are to give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, what I think he would say to us is you, you, uh, you have responsibilities here in this particular place, in this particular time, in this particular type of government in which you exist. All of us have responsibility in what we are supposed to do here. And we have responsibilities towards our uh, governing authorities. We have responsibilities towards our neighbors. We have responsibilities granted to us by God at this particular place and in this particular time. 
So Paul, when he talks about this, St. Paul, when he talks about this in Romans 13, he says this, because you have this going on, you pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. I think we can translate it to say something like this. We participate in the political process here as citizens in this country by voting and paying taxes, and we do all of this for the sake of love and for the sake of our neighbors. God has given you an ability and a responsibility to work for, in some way, the good of your community. So that when you go to the voting booth, when you vote, you are voting in such a way as to serve your neighbor. Not your own selfish desires now here, but to serve your neighbor and do what is best for the people in your community. And now, this will include paying taxes. This will include showing honor to the elected officials. But whatever it is we do, we are doing so in love for the sake of our neighbor. This is our responsibility. Here's how we give to Caesar what is Caesar's. But here's what it does not mean. And I think this is really what we need to hear today. It does not mean honoring Caesar like he is divine. It does not mean trusting in the government to fix all the world's problems and to establish a utopian kingdom of God on earth. Nor does it mean that we live in constant terror and fear because we buy into the fear-mongering narrative which tells us that everything will fall apart at the seams and all hell will break loose if your party doesn't win in November. Yes, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. But don't place your fear, love, and trust in him. Those are the things that belong to God alone. Think of Luther's uh, small catechism, right? And we talk about uh, the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. What does this mean? We should fear, love, and trust God above all else. Which tells us then today that politics, yes, they are important. They're very important, but they are not ultimate. So that we are reminded that no matter what happens in November, no matter what happens afterwards, the kingdom of God will still stand. Like what's going to happen to our country and to the world? I don't know. I don't know. But what does this all mean for the church and for the kingdom of God? Well, here's a few things we do know. That whatever happens in November will not change the mission or the ministry or the reign of Christ. But see, we get this all mixed up. We get this so confused in our heads where we fear what will happen if our party loses. We blindly love what our party and its leaders say. And we trust that our party is going to do exactly what we want for our good. But what happens when that doesn't happen? Because you know what? Sometimes that doesn't happen. What happens when our party loses? Does this, I mean, what does this mean for the church and the kingdom of God? Are your sins now no longer forgiven? Does Jesus see the results of November and say, well, time to get back in the tomb? Does Jesus now stop bringing us his word and do we stop preaching the same message and the same gospel and the same crucified and risen Lord? No. For remember, the church and the kingdom of God are not in the hands of the Republican or Democratic parties, but they are in the hands of the crucified and risen Lord. 
So your faith belongs to him. That's what you give to God, your faith. Now I can already hear what you're saying and thinking. I told the other services this. I don't know if you know that about me, but I can hear you while you watch me preach. I know what you're all thinking. It's a very incredible trick that I have. And here's what you're thinking. You're thinking, what? Are you saying, Pastor, that we should not take this political season seriously? Are you saying we don't need to be concerned about what happens in November? Don't you understand, Pastor? This is the most important election of our lifetime. And I know it is. They all are. Here's the thing. We need to remember uh, that we do need to take this process seriously with an incredible amount of seriousness, but not because the results of November are going to save the world, but because God has called you to serve and love your neighbor. God has called you to be active in your community for the sake of those who need to be taken care of. But we must always remember that November will not save the world. The only thing that will save the world is the Lord Jesus Christ, and the only time things will be perfect in this world is when He comes again to judge the living and the dead. But in thinking of all of this, think of how much better it is to have Jesus as a Lord than Caesar. I mean, if you want to make politics your God, you know, understand a few things. That as a God, politics will never give you anything. It will only take from you. It will only demand from you. It will call upon you to sacrifice your blood, sweat, and tears for the sake of the cause or for the sake of the party. And it will always call upon you to give, but it will never give back. There's no mercy for you with this particular God. And what is more, this particular God will show you how to have no mercy towards your political adversaries, which we have now defined as our enemies. There's no love towards the enemy in this kingdom. They are just to be gotten rid of. And if you think I'm wrong about this, you should consider all the conversations I see going on now among family members who will not speak to each other because they vote differently. If this is not a sign of idolatry, I do not know what is. But you see, Jesus is the opposite of this. He becomes Lord, not by taking your life from you, but giving his life for you. He becomes Lord, and he's the only Lord who rules with love and mercy. It is his blood, sweat, and tears that bring about the kingdom and not yours. He is a king who lays down his life for his subjects so that he might give them the kingdom, not as something they have to earn, but as a gift by grace alone. Here is a kingdom that is not earned but given. All that is demanded of you in this kingdom of God is given to you and paid for with the blood of Jesus Christ. And all of this the Lord Jesus gives and does for you, for free, because he loves you. I think it's interesting to sort of close out today to think about this denarius, this coin. When on the coin it says, or Jesus sees the coin and he sees the image and the inscription of Caesar on it. And he says, look, his name is on it, his face is on it. It belongs to him. That's what is Caesar's. Think about this. In your baptism, God, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit put his name on you and raised you up in the image of Christ Jesus, which means you are His. You belong to the Lord. 
He's baptized you and purchased you with his blood and brought you into his kingdom. So do not forget that. That no matter what happens in November, no matter what comes afterwards, no matter about any of this, you belong to the Lord. And he is the only king who truly loves you. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, forgive us for making an idol of our politics. Lord, forgive us for not trusting in you to take care of us, but for giving our fear, love, and trust to those who cannot handle them. We pray this day, Lord Jesus, that you would reign in our hearts, in our minds, and you would use us now in our communities as citizens of this country and of this state so that the decisions we make may glorify you and serve your neighbor. Lord, let your name be hallowed among us and guide us in our political activity for the sake of your name and the glory of your kingdom. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.